it comes to the Lord, really one word sums it up. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, um, we have gathered here this morning for that purpose, that sole purpose, to bring glory to you, to thank you, to praise you, to honor you for all that you have done for us. You have given us Christ Jesus, who died for us, that we might have salvation. And so, our Father, we praise you this morning. Thank you for the privilege it is to gather here on this Easter Sunday morning, celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who, by his resurrection, has brought death to death. Lord, that's a a powerful message for us. Because in our gathering here, there are so many, Lord, who've recently been bereaved. And we think about the fact that those we love are in your eternal presence this morning, praising you, celebrating Easter with you. Thank you for the great promise that is, for the consolation it is to our hearts, and for what we have to look forward to. We are people filled with hope because of Christ. Father, we thank you this morning for the fact that you are a healing God and you care about us. Some of our friends, Lord, as you know, are going through difficult times, and I pray for them, for Barb and Jack and Ed and Reno, for Denzel and Ruth and Elsie and Gabriel. Lord, I pray for them and others who need a special healing touch from you, a strengthening and encouragement, a reminder that your presence is with them and you don't forsake people. Especially in our time of need, Lord, when we draw near to you, you draw near to us. I pray for the Pallant family. I pray that they might be strengthened in these days, encouraged of heart. Thank you for a life well lived. Lord, I pray especially for Doug in these days, that you will be a special presence in his life, strengthening and encouraging him, reminding him of your great love for him, your grace that's amazing. Our Father, we thank you for those who partner with us in the gospel around the world. We pray for the Pesh in Cambodia. Lord, I pray that you might cause their ministry to be fruitful and effective. Lord, wherever the word of God is going forth this morning with truth and integrity, I pray that much fruit will be born. Thank you that you are a saving God and you are still bringing people into your family. So, Lord, it's an exciting day because their new life is being born this day somewhere in the world. And uh, Lord, thank you for that. Uh, For this next 24-hour period, there will be people hearing the word of God and responding, believing. Thank you for that. I pray for that in this room, that no one would leave here the way they came, and that those who came without Christ would leave with him. I pray. Father, I pray for those who are prayer concerns of us. Lord, uh, this prayer request that has come in for this individual's family. Our Father, we remember them to you. You know who they are, and I pray that you might bring them to yourself. Our Father, we pray that this service might continue to honor you and praise you. Thank you for this privilege of bringing to you our offerings. We bring them with hearts of thanksgiving for your great generosity to us, the indescribable gift. Lord, how can we describe Jesus Christ? We can try and we can present to you back the descriptions that you've given us in your word, but there is so much more. 
that from a human perspective, we can't possibly fully describe the awesome greatness of Christ. But thank you for the privilege of being used by you to be instruments of the truth, shining the light. Thank you in Jesus' name. As we continue our celebration and song, we're going to invite the ushers to come forward to receive our morning gifts and offerings. And uh, we'll also use this time to dismiss our children to their time of children's church. The choir is going to lead you in a song that continues to give thanks to God for all that he has done for us through the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I encourage you to stand with us once the ushers have received the offering and uh, join in this song for all you've done.
hallelujah was the, the praise that the people were offering to Jesus when he came into the city of Jerusalem riding on that colt. They were praising him, praising his name, calling out hallelujah, hallelujah. And you remember that, that he went to the temple and found that the uh, Gentiles were being uh, distracted from bringing worship to God. In the court of the Gentiles, the Jews had been basically shutting the Gentiles out from worship. And it's interesting, of course, that Jesus there, he, he uh, turned over some tables, rearranged some furniture, and made it possible for the Gentiles to do what they had come to do, which is to worship him at Passover time. I think it's rather ironic that the Jews were shutting the Gentiles out of their most holy site. And if you go to Jerusalem today, it is the Gentiles who are now shutting the Jews out of their most holy site. As the Muslims, with their Dome of the Rock, have made it impossible for the Jewish people to go and gather at what they believe is their most holy site. Right following that incident, it says in the Word of God in John chapter 12 that there were some Greek guys who had come to worship the living God. And they'd come to uh, gather at the temple area. And they had noted that Jesus had made it possible for them by clearing the temple to get rid of the distractions so that they could worship him. And these two Greek guys, you find in John chapter 12, if you're turning your Bibles to verse 20, you'll find that these couple of Greek guys uh, caught up with Philip, one of the disciples. And I assume that they might have gone to Philip because he had a Greek name. Maybe they felt like he was one of their homies, so they felt comfortable with him. And they went to Philip, and he was from Bethsaida, by the way, one of those places where Jesus had performed amazing miracles. And and Philip was from there, and they asked Philip, they they said, we want to see Jesus. And um, it wasn't all that easy just to get to Jesus from Philip because Jesus had some, some executive assistants. He had to go through them to get to Jesus. And so Philip went to Andrew and said to Andrew, there's some Greek guys here who want to see Jesus. And so it says in the text that Philip and Andrew went to Jesus and said, there's some Greek guys who want to see you. And then... We pick up the text. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now you can imagine, Philip and Andrew are like looking at each other right now. Going, What's he saying? The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said... It had thundered, but others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. 
The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that, that Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And Philip and Andrew are like, we, we just asked if like a couple of Greek guys could talk to you. A simple yes would have been okay. I'm guessing, though, that by this time, they become somewhat used to the fact that, that Jesus regularly surprised them. And um, we, we notice that um, so stunning and, and so overwhelming were the events that, that they had been uh, following along with of, of Jesus, and particularly in these last days, on those last earth days, that, that in fact, um, the eyewitness report found in verse 16 of this same chapter is this. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Now, John is, um, is writing this his uh, gospel memoirs, probably in 85 AD, as an old man, reflecting uh, around 50 years or so after these events had taken place. And, and he's, he's had all of these years to, to, to soak in the Spirit of God and, and reflect on what had happened and to peruse also the other gospels that had been written by this time and most of the epistles, if not all of them. And, and so... John has all of this body of work of truth and the Old Testament scriptures. And he's now reporting, like, we didn't get it. When we were there, for the most part, we saw all these things. And, and we'd bring a couple of guys to see Jesus. And then he'd go off and saying all this stuff. And, and we really didn't get it. We didn't understand what, what it was all about. And it's one thing, of course, to, to be bewildered as some sort of forensic investigator of of events that have taken place after the fact, and you go and try and piece together the truth. But, but these, these men, these guys, the disciples, they were there all along through all of these events, and they still struggled to understand what had taken place, to comprehend these things. So amazing and marvelous were they. Now, by the way, I, I want to quickly add that the, the Gospels are not some fantasy that was dreamed up by a group of individuals who got together to conspire and produce some sort of best-selling book. They, by their own admission, said, we didn't get this stuff. We, we didn't understand what was going on. This stuff was too amazing for us. The, these were people who were caught up in the true story. Real-time witness they're eyewitness reporters. That's who they were. With explanatory notes as they reflected later on what had happened compared to the prophecies of what was supposed to happen. Now, I, I want to tell you that the overwhelming reaction then and now to Jesus' teachings and to Jesus in general is recorded also by John nearer the end of this chapter. He picks it up in verse 37 and he says, Even after Jesus had done all of these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. And this, of course, was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he, meaning God, has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn, and I would heal them. 
And the question this morning is, what about you? What about you in the hearing of this word and in the seeing of the realities of these truths? What about you? It's fascinating that when these Greek men showed up, Jesus' response was, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Everything waits for the hour. In other words, Jesus was saying to them, All of creation is hanging on this moment. You don't get it right now, even though I've told you. But you don't really get it. But I want you to know that on this hour, this moment, that what's going to be unfolding in the next several days and hours, called the hour, this is the hour whereby the Son of Man is going to be glorified. And creation waits, frustrated, for this hour to come. Uh, Death has had dominion over the events of people's lives. Death will be transformed. Sin that has held people in its clutches over the ages will be affected. And Satan, who's been on a winning streak, it's about to come to an end because the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What's this hour all about? Well, Jesus is basically saying, unless something drastic changes, and something drastic is going to change, then creation will remain frustrated, and death will remain dominant, and sin will continue to imprison people, and Satan will continue on his winning streak. The hour is how Jesus fixes a sinful, broken, death-dominated creation. And so he goes on to explain by way of five basic statements that are compacted in verse 31 and verse 32, for the most part, what this hour is all about. Father, I pray this morning that we will not miss the significance of what you have for us in this text. I just want to pause right now because so crucial is the understanding of this truth. That unless the power and presence of your spirit comes to open up blind eyes and deaf ears and cold hearts, there are people in this room who will not understand and will not believe. But Lord... I know your vision, your heart, is that none would perish. Lord, I ask that nobody would leave this place this morning in a state of uh, lack of understanding, but that, that people would understand and believe everyone in this place. I ask this in Jesus' name. In explaining what this hour is all about, Jesus first of all said in verse 31, Now is the time for judgment on this world. It's a time for judgment on this world. It's time to choose, in other words, Jesus said. It's choice time. And by the way, um, the events that were unfolding would be the rejection of Jesus Christ. 
And the world lines up in two camps. And in fact, Jesus is pointing out to them that that you're going to see how judgment unfolds. Not that Jesus came into the world to judge the world. In fact, he says, I didn't come into the world to judge or condemn the world. But that the world, through him, might be saved. He said, you're going to see around me, though, that people are going to make a judgment. And they're going to judge against the Savior. They're going to choose to reject Jesus Christ. They are going to demonstrate to you that for the most part, the majority of people in this world rebel against their creator. And you're going to see it unfold in your very viewing. And you're going to hear it with your ears. People are going to either choose to serve him or to reject him. Confirming, by the way, through their rejection, their guilt. Mankind rebels against her creator. The opportunity is being presented to them, Jesus says, to choose mercy. And or they will reject the humility and repentance that is required to avail themselves of that mercy. Against what their eyes see and what their ears hear and what their hearts tug them toward. I've been preaching for a lot of years to lots of audiences like this. And I regularly find myself amazed because your eyes see and your ears hear and your hearts are somewhat tugged and you walk away. And people walk away Sunday after Sunday Rejecting the Savior who died for them, who came to offer them eternal life. Jesus said, now is the time for judgment on this world. Choose. Choose you this day who you will follow. But then there are those who recognize him. There are those who see him with their eyes and hear him with their ears And receive him with their hearts and say, I know who he is. I know who this Jesus is. He's the son of God. He's the very living God. He's the the creator. He's the savior. He he died for my sins and, and I believe in him and I receive him. To them who received him, they gave the right to become children of God. He says, not only is this the time for judgment on the world, but he says, now is the time for the prince of this world to be driven out. As rejection of Jesus Christ picks up steam. I think we can read between the lines. We almost sense that Satan is is rubbing his hands together with glee. The prince of this world. It looks like he's going to continue on his winning streak. I'm going to crush the one who's claiming to be Messiah. Look at what the people are doing. They're rising up against him. By the way, the prince of this world is none other than Satan himself. And... And I want you to understand that that when you read through the scriptures and you look around, for the most part, he is the people's choice. As mind-boggling as that is, as bizarre as that is, make no mistake about it. When people insist they, 
hate the evils of this world. They, they hate all the wars and they hate all the stealing and they hate all the lying. And, and they hate all the fact that, that people steal little girls and kill them. And they, and they hate all the, all the horrible things that happen in our world. Make no mistake about it, they are entirely disingenuous. Because if they truly hated the evils of this world, they would not follow the prince of this world. He is a liar and a killer and a destroyer. This is the verdict, John says in John chapter 3, verse 19. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light. It was at the trial of Jesus that um, the crowds once again demonstrated the truth of what I've just shared with you. They were offered a choice. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the one who had miraculously given sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf, life to the dead, comfort to the brokenhearted, or Barabbas, an insurrectionist, a a rebel, a, a murderer. But uh, but no, no, we hate the evils of this world. We hate all the lying and the cheating and the stealing and the pain that everybody incurs on on one or, or imposes on one another. But give us Barabbas. The crowds are illogical. The prince of this world has them in his grip. But Jesus stands before his disciples and the crowd that was gathered around and said, Now is the time for the prince of this world to be driven out. His winning streak is coming to an end. Coming to an abrupt end. It's the time for his defeat. What seemed like his triumph moment is going to be his massive and conclusive defeat. The reign of tyranny is going to be smashed. Sin can't master people any longer. Death can't terrorize those who are sick. Death dies when Jesus rises from the grave. The prince of this world is going to be driven out. Now, by the way, the crucifixion of Christ was not a surprise to God. Nothing ever is. You can't be sovereign and surprised, too. Doesn't work. You can't be partially in charge. You either are in charge or you aren't. And so when Jesus says that uh, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified and makes the point that now is the time for judgment on the world and, and now the prince of this world is going to be driven out, he says, and when I am lifted up, not if... He didn't stand before his disciples and say, you know what, there's a trial coming up. Uh, I'm not really sure how it's going to turn out. I'm I'm hoping that I have a good lawyer who can plead my case and maybe I can get off with a slap on the wrist, but but I'm really a little bit nervous about what's going to happen. No, no, he he already stated for the disciples precisely what was going to happen. When I am lifted up. He's reminded of a conversation he had with them on the way to Jerusalem just before the triumphant entry. 
the other gospel writers, both Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record this, but John chose not to. Jesus, on his way to Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 20, verse 18, says, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. How's that for a courtroom transcript? All before the event. There's no surprise to Jesus that he's going to be crucified. The unfolding events of your life each day are not a surprise to God. As difficult and painful as many of them are, Jesus is saying in this event, what what should I do? My heart's troubled. He wasn't walking into this thinking it was going to be painless. It was going to be the most devastating event any human being ever had or ever will go through. Nothing will ever match what Jesus has done for us. Should I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, no, it was for the very, this very reason I came to this hour. No, it's about glorifying God. It's about recognizing Him as sovereign. That's what being a follower of Jesus Christ is all about. It's saying no to the idolatry of self in favor of the sovereignty of God, trusting Him, believing in Him. Jesus says matter-of-factly to them, when I am lifted up from the earth, Remember the conversation we had as we were coming in Jerusalem? I guess you guys have forgotten about it. Conveniently, because you didn't like what I said. At the very beginning of time, in the Garden of Eden, when God was addressing the first sin of rebellion, he said this in John, or Genesis 3.15, You, referring to Satan will strike his heel. He, Jesus, will crush your head. And then the psalmist says in Psalm 110, verse 1, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You know what? In order for something to be a footstool, you have to be lifted up. You have to be above that. And then as they were gathered around at the Last Supper with Jesus prophesying his betrayal, he says this of Judas. John 13, 18. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus, with exact precision of the prophecies, points to himself as the one who will crush the head as the one lifted up. And Judas the betrayer will represent Satan who bruises the heel. But remember, the guys who were gathered around weren't really getting it, weren't really understanding all of this stuff. And and so when they heard the lifted up from the earth phrase, the faithful, those who were following Jesus with a passion and and were excited about the coming of the Messiah, and the ones coming who said to the triumphal entry, Hallelujah, the King is coming. Those ones, 
when they heard this terminology lifted up, they were thinking about the vanquishing Messiah is here. Rome is toast. That's what they were hearing. And they were excited about it. And why wouldn't they be? In the Messianic prophecies of Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, it talks about the Messiah being raised and lifted up and highly exalted. And they were ready to get the, the coronation crown out and get the throne and build it and, and put him on the throne right then and, and exalt him to the highest of high. But there were some skeptics in the crowd. Those who... Um, didn't believe. And they said, Houston, we've got a problem here. Well, not exactly that way, but here's what they said. Verse 34, we have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Interestingly, the phrase lifted up was a catchphrase that was known to the crowds, uh, referring to crucifixion. Uh, they knew when they referred to somebody and said, hey, in a couple of days he's going to be lifted up. They knew what kind of death he was going to die. He wasn't going to be stoned to death. He was going to be crucified to death and lifted up on a cross. That's why John further records that, that uh, this is how he was explaining his death. And so they, they got it. I mean, they were, they were uh, prophetic students, and they had remembered such prophecies as Isaiah chapter 9, and where it talks about uh, the, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, whose dominion will be forever. So they're standing before him, before Jesus, and saying, wait a second, you're telling us that you're going to be lifted up? That means you're telling us you're going to be crucified, which means you're telling us you're going to die, which means how can you be the Messiah? What kind of a Messiah are you? I thought the Messiah had to live forever. So Jesus gathers these two opinions says they cover both realities. Lifted up means Jesus is both lifted up on the cross and lifted up to glory. It's the most amazing thing that happened at the cross of Calvary. Looking back, the gospel writer discovers the full implications of this. He paid, he died to pay our sin for our sin problem. The kind of death he had. He was lifted up and crucified. But he was lifted up in glory to preside over every challenge you were ever faced. And he has raised us up with him in the heavenlies. That's what lifted up means in its fullest sense. He has been crucified. He has been glorified. When they went to the tomb on Easter Sunday morning, Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. He is glorified. those who live with him, you will live on top of your challenges. And Jesus said, when this happens, when the Son of Man is lifted up from the earth, the Father will draw all men to him. 
See, John had already recorded in John 6, 44, that unless the Father draws people to him, they cannot be saved. But the Father will draw people to himself. He has drawn you. He has drawn many of you who, who have believed and are saved and been added to his forever family. That's what the Father does. And so he says he will draw all people to himself. When those Greek men showed up on that day, it was a signal from heaven that um, God was ready now for the hour to take place. That now the grand vision of God that was to include all the peoples of the earth A vision, by the way, that should not have been a strange vision to the Jews. It was given to them since the very beginning of time that Abraham would be used and responsible through the family line to bless all the peoples of the world. Now was the time. So you kind of thought that Jesus was ignoring these Greek guys, right? And went into this this long discussion about, about theology and all. No, no, he wasn't ignoring the guys. The guys precipitated this great teaching And Philip and Andrew didn't really get it, but John later reflecting on it says, Oh, now I get it. They were the signal. Jesus was answering and responding to these Greeks. Now is the hour. Now is the time that God is is going to bring together his international community. Uh, All the people didn't mean all the people without exception. It meant all the people without boundaries and borders. Jesus wasn't coming into town to kill the Romans. He was coming into town to offer salvation to the Romans. He wasn't coming to kill the Syrians. He was coming to offer salvation to the Syrians. He wasn't coming to ignore the Greeks and send them away. He was coming to offer them salvation through Jesus Christ. He was coming to offer us salvation. Uh, The majority of the people in this room being Gentiles. This was the moment where God is signaling to the Son... That this is the hour. Now go to the cross. Die for these people. Rise again from the grave. And bring them into my family. What an amazing truth that is. The father is anxious to build his international family. The dividing line is not ethnicity. It's not age. Not gender. It's belief. The dividing line is belief. In John 3.15, we are told how salvation occurs. Everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. The cross being lifted up is the critical event of the hour. The Son of Man must be lifted up and the people must believe. You can't bypass the cross and run to the resurrection. I, I fear that, and as I've, as I've watched these holiday events occur over the years, I have watched Christmas and Easter Sunday over and over again, and I have watched people run to the Christmas Jesus in great numbers. I have watched less people run to the Easter Jesus in great numbers because it's a message of resurrection from the dead. But I don't see people running to the cross. And Jesus says, 
You can't bypass the cross. It is when the Son of Man is lifted above from the earth that he will draw men to himself, men and women to himself. I want to I want to express to you the urgency of the hour this morning. Because our fifth and final picture of this moment is through the description of a word Jesus repeats twice in those two verses. He says, now. Now is the hour. Now is the time. Now is the beginning of the end. And the end of the beginning. Do you realize that once that hour arrived, God's clock, his countdown clock began. His countdown clock until he determines that the last person has seen with their eyes and heard with their ears and responded with their heart and believed. And it'll be the end. And then for those of us who who long for his appearing and love the Savior, after our 60 or 70 or 80 years or whatever it is, whatever God chooses, the end for us becomes the beginning. That's the grand message of salvation. Now there's no one in this room this morning that hasn't heard what Jesus has offered, and what Jesus has done. What kind of a now moment is this going to be for you? Is this a a celebration because you are a child of God and you just come to glorify him and praise him? What a wonderful thing that is. But is this another Easter Sunday where you have arrived without Christ Trying to live life on your own? The expectations were for a triumphant liberator Messiah who would be eternal. Nobody connected the dots to a cross. Crosses kill people, they kill eternal messiahs. John, the gospel writer in John chapter 2, 22, recognized that. And he said this, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said. Then they believed Jesus Christ is risen from the grave. He went to the cross to die for your sins. He paid the penalty that should have been yours. He went into the grave. On the third day, he rose from the grave. He was witnessed to by these people. They saw him. 500 other witnesses saw that Jesus Christ was a risen Christ. And it says in the text, we didn't get it, but when we saw Jesus, we believed. Would you believe this morning? Would you believe? Jesus really answers the question at verse 35, what should we do? You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light. 
before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. Put your trust in the light while you have it, so that you may become sons or children of the light. Jesus' own words to you this morning to answer the question, what should I do with this truth? You may have the light only a little while longer. In fact, you may only have the light this morning. Choose to believe that Jesus died for you and you will be saved and have eternal life. Pastor Steve and the team are going to come and lead us in a final victory hymn. And for most of you, this is a victory hymn. But I want to leave open the possibility that for some of you here this morning... This is not yet your victory hymn, but it could be this morning. And as we're singing this hymn, I'm going to uh, invite you to stand with me. And then I'm going to invite those of you who've seen with your eyes and heard with your ears and your heart has been tugged by the living God for the first time. And you've come to the place where you say, you know what, I believe. I'm going to invite you during the singing of this victory hymn to come to the front of the church and testify publicly. Not to these people from your mouth so that you have to be afraid, but rather by your action to come to the front of this church and declare that today, today I believe that Jesus Christ is my Savior, that He died for my sins, and that if I will ask for forgiveness, I will receive that forgiveness In humility and repentance, I come and offer my life to him that I might walk in the light as he is in the light. You come this morning. This is your victory day. Now is the time to be saved. Now is the time to respond to Christ. I want to call our pastors to gather here. We're in this room right at the front. You come while we sing this hymn. You come to the front and demonstrate your belief in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And this song will be your victory song. And for those of you who love him with all of your hearts, sing this like it is a victory hymn from your hearts. Let's sing, shall we? Mm -hmm.